We are going to be spending our time in Exodus chapter 5 and in Exodus chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, we're not going to read uh, all of these chapters, but we're going to skip around uh, and read uh, three uh, selections from these, these two chapters. We have been uh, going through the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses, asking what does Moses have to teach us about trusting God, about walking with him, uh, what can we learn from his life uh, to help us uh, today. And I think today uh, we'll be helped by uh, these events and, and Moses' experience here. So as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I'm uh, starting in uh, Exodus 5, I'll read verses 1 through 8. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of, Hebrew, the God of the Hebrews has, sent me, has met with us. Now let us take three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Go back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave his, this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. And then skipping down to verse 15 of chapter 5. Then the, Israelites, the Israelite overseers went and appeal, appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw. Yet they are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, whereby they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, verse 6 says, that, says say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty axe of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with my uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you. And as we, in our hearts and minds, reflect upon uh, this event in the life of your people, in the life of ultimately the church, we pray that you would guide and direct us and that you would teach us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. In the 1800s, the state of Georgia had a land lottery. And what this meant was that individuals in the state could register for that lottery, and they put their name in the hat, so to speak, and uh, names would be drawn and land would be awarded, 160 parcels of land. And so you probably had a, maybe a one in five chance, 25, 20% chance uh, if you registered uh, for some land uh, to receive that. And basically, it, maybe you could say it's like winning the lottery today uh, because you are introduced basically into instant wealth. Uh, given this land to cultivate and to own and to, to do with, to uh, produce uh, for you would, would have been a, a huge advantage, great advantage for any individual. And sociologists got a hold of this, uh, you know, years and generations and generations later on. And they looked at that and they, they took the names and they wanted to, to go in and study that with, with this question in mind. Did receiving wealth produce more wealth? Did it produce greater wealth? How much of an advantage was it really for those, those families that received that, that land? And so they did the math, and they, they traced back and did the painstaking work of going through and looking at family after family and generation after generation and see what advantage they had with, given, with as being one of those people that were given this land. And basically what they found was giving, being given wealth did not guarantee greater wealth. You would think that if, if your uh, parents received land and you were introduced and had this great opportunity to earn, that those children, or maybe at least that the grandchildren of those, would be in a better earning position, would be in a greater position to, um, to go to college or receive greater education so as to come back and create greater wealth. But that wasn't the case. Just because you were given wealth did not guarantee that you were able to produce greater wealth, to produce more of it. Didn't mean that you didn't, but it wasn't A didn't necessarily equal B. My point with that is that that can be true of us in a, in a spiritual um, relationship too, in our spiritual dynamic as well, meaning just because God shows up, just because God makes himself known and clear, does not guarantee that everybody's going to respond with faith, that life is going to cruise along and everything's going to be great, it's going to be easy. And I think we see that in this passage. God is showing up, but just because God is showing up, we don't see people like, this is great, life is easy now. We see hardship, we see difficulty, we see struggling uh, to believe that God really is true, that God really is on their side. Sometimes when God shows up, there's doubt there's resistance, there's rebellion, and I think this is one of those passages where we see God showing up and there's doubt. And so what I want to do with this passage is, is look at this, the, the different types of unbelief that we see in this passage. 
and talk about how we can be moving past that unbelief that's, that's in our hearts, moving past that, that discouragement or doubt that we encounter sometimes. So three points, unbelief and authority, uh, unbelief and discouragement for the second, and then unbelief in God. So unbelief and authority, discouragement, and then unbelief in God. So unbelief and authority, this is, this is what I mean. Look at, at chapter 5 of Exodus, verse 1, starts out with this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And this is Moses' opening line as he meets Pharaoh for the first time. And it's appropriate language. It's the language of a prophet, if you will. It's Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, this is, this is not coming from me, but this is coming from the, the God of Israel. It's coming from, from it's, it's his authority that I'm coming to you under. And the basic message is, let my people go. Uh, let them go, take this three-day journey, and let them go and worship and they are making a reasonable request, you might say. And that reasonable request, it's, it's part of its intended purpose is, is to really to expose Pharaoh's heart, certainly to Moses and Aaron and to every, and us as, as, as readers of this. And think about how Pharaoh responds. He says, or he asks a question, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? And that question gets at the heart of this is who Moses and Aaron are dealing with. This is the type of person that Moses and Aaron having to deal with. He does not want to know God. He has no interest in God. There is resistance to God. And two things about unbelief that I think we can observe here. The first one is this. Unbelief questions authority. And that's clear from this, this passage. It's clear from Pharaoh and his interaction. When Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? It's not like he's asking, asking as somebody who's inquiring. Like he's bending over, oh, really, tell me more about him. I, I want to know more. I'm, I'm curious about this God that you're uh, bringing this request to. Uh, I want to know that, who is this God? What is he about? What does he look like? What's, uh, what are his characteristics? What are his laws? What are his demands? Tell me more about that. That's not what Pharaoh is after. But it's more along the question, the line of, who is God? I'm, I'm not going to listen uh, to him. And part of what, what helps us understand Pharaoh's question a little bit is some of the principles that drove Egypt and what the Egyptians knew about their Pharaoh and knew about their king, that he was placed on the level of divinity, that he was like their God. Uh, he had ultimate, ultimate power. He had exclusive power over all those underneath him. For example, and, and you catch a little bit of this in verse 1 of chapter 5. Of course, Moses goes, this is what the Lord says, and that's how he introduces things. But then you go to verse 10, and it reads, this is what Pharaoh says. And it's meant to, to as, as readers, we're meant to pick on, the, the, the compare those two. This is what God says, but this is what Pharaoh says. And it's meant to say that Pharaoh, to communicate Pharaoh's ultimate real authority uh, that he sees himself as, as having and possessing. The second thing that we learn about unbelief here is that unbelief resists authority. Not, not only questions authority, but resists authority. Uh, a couple observations. The fact that Pharaoh will not listen to is a, a relatively reasonable request. Will you let these people go? Give them a little sabbatical. Let them go in, in worship, so to speak. They've been working and working and working. It, it's, it's kind of reasonable that you would give them time away. 
And what that request does is it reveals to us, certainly to us as, as readers and to, to Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, this is how bad it is for them. This is the, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, if you will. And the second thing is, is this related to how unbelief resists authority. When Pharaoh's asking who this God is to make such a demand upon him, it's not like he's saying, I have no idea this God you're talking about. It's like he's saying, I, not only do I not know this God that you're talking about, but that there's no way that I'm going to follow him, that I'm going to respond to his request that you are making upon me. And a reasonable question for us is, okay, I, I see what you're saying about unbelief and, and authority and how those two, two things are clashing here, the, the unbelief that we see in Pharaoh's heart uh, and in his life. But what does that mean for us today? What's, what's kind of the import for us as, as believers today living in this, this space and time? Well, I think it's, it's this. When, when Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go and worship, it's certainly easy to think, well, he doesn't let him go because he doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't believe in this God uh, of the Israelites. He's, he's not on their team, so to speak. But I think it's helpful to, to take that and, and move that a, a little bit deeper and to say that what we see in Pharaoh is that Pharaoh's resisting the idea and pushes back the, on, on the idea that, that somebody outside of him would have exclusive say on his life that have exclusive authority to speak into his life. In other words, Pharaoh is, is a picture, a reminder of, of somebody that says, I am the one that decides what's true of my life in the direction of my life and what, should be, what I should be about and what I should believe about myself and, and what my values should be. And he's helpful as we think about our own culture and our own the time that we live in, especially today. Freedom is so important in our culture. The idea that, that I decide what's good for me. I decide about um, uh, my uh, personal life and what I do with, with my money and what I do in my relationships and what I do with this and that. And you get the picture of that. I decide that nobody has exclusive authoritative claim on my life. Nobody can tell me what to do the only thing that's absolutely true is that I get to absolutely decide what's true upon me. And so I think we see that the, the unbelief that we see expressed in Pharaoh helps us understand or is, is, it points us to, to think that, that we live in that kind of culture too, that there's people in our families, people we work with, people in our community, people we see running for office or in every kind of nook and cranny that, that see themselves as their own decider of their lives and the idea that a God that created them having absolute authority over their lives is, is foreign to them and is something to be resisted. And for us, to, I'm not trying to, to pile on people that, that don't share our faith in Christ, but, but the one thing for us to realize is how important it is for God to be working in their lives. All of us can, can think about individuals that we think there's no way that this person could ever become a Christian uh, that there's no way because of their, their, their family background and their, their beliefs coming into um, a conversation about the Bible are so foreign. There's no way they're going to believe in Jesus. And yet, God works in their lives. He changes them. And he takes that, that hard heart and he humbles it. They see their bankruptcy, as some of us talked about this morning, and they're able to embrace Christ. 
unbelief that we see in our culture certainly needs to be met with prayer and a desire for God to work in the midst of our initiating and, and going out in obedience. The second thing is, is unbelief and discouragement. We see unbelief and discouragement when we look at verses 6 through 8 um, in chapter 5. Moses has, has gone to Pharaoh. They made this request, and Pharaoh's response is, you know, who is this God? I'm not going to follow him. And then Pharaoh turns around and says, you know what? We're going we're gonna to jack up the workload. We're going to increase the workload. Uh, you Israelites are required to make the same amount of bricks, but we're not going to give you the straw. And so you've got the same workload, the same quota to fulfill, but in a sense you've got one hand tied behind your back now uh, to do this. He increases this upon them. And this is Pharaoh's way of, of dealing with this rebellion. His desire is, I, I've got to crush this rebellion. This could be a potential disaster for us as a country. They are, the Israelites are so numerous that I've got to deal with this. I've got to snuff it out as best I can so he increases the workload. Just as the Israelites thought that things could get better, Moses and Aaron have come to them with hope, really. They said, you know what, we have met with God, we've heard from him, and God has heard your prayers, and we're going to Pharaoh, and we're going to talk to him. You can imagine these Israelites just having some hope, that the light maybe is shining upon them. They can see some change coming their way, and it's snuffed out. Uh, it's gotten, it's getting, it got worse for them. Things have not gotten better, but things have gotten worse for them as a people. Now, we know the end of the story. We know that the plagues are coming. We know that the Red Sea is going to open up. We know that they're going to go into the wilderness. That We know that they're going to escape, and it's going to end bad for Pharaoh, that he's, he's going to be overwhelmed by the sea. But they don't know that. They don't see that. And you put yourself in their shoes under the weight of this slavery, weight of this discouragement. We thought maybe this is going to happen, and then hope has just been ripped out from them because of this increased workload upon them. Which leads us to ask, shouldn't things get better when we believe in God, when we start to move out in obedience even? Shouldn't things get better? How is it that things are getting worse for the Israelites? Why are things worse for them when they're starting to believe and move closer to God and believe that God's working and and, and things are going to happen I don't know the ultimate answer to that, why God does this, but I think there's a couple things we can pull from this and learn from it for our our situation today. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. And some some of you know this by experience. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes things get worse in our life before we see the, the greatness and the amazement of God's redemption in our lives. For example, sometimes when you have hard conversations with somebody uh, about some spiritual truth, about something that, that's, uh, that they're, something that could be different and should be different about their lives, and you're being obedient, you're, you're trusting God with that, and you're trying to communicate in a winsome way, an inviting way, but trying to communicate truth at the same time, And that hurts your relationship. It brings more strain. It brings more stress. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. You engage somebody with the gospel. It's a friend in your family. Uh, Somebody in your community. You you move towards them and you begin to talk about spiritual truth with them. You're being obedient. You're trusting God. You've prayed. 
And things don't get better, but they get worse. You're, you feel more alienated. You feel more understood. They, they push back in, in maybe a harsh way. Sometimes things get more difficult before they get better. And it helps us to understand that God is doing something deeper and richer in our lives. The second reason why suffering sometimes comes with obedience is this. Pastor Dale Ralph Davis suggests that the increase in suffering came about for the Israelites in order to get the Egypt out of the Israelites. Before the Israelites could leave Egypt, they needed to get more of the Egypt out of them. Uh, In other words, it's one thing for the Israelites to leave Egypt, but the attitudes and the... the, um, the routine and the values and the, 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 what they've had in Egypt, that has to, to die as well. That, that has to go away as well. Because if it doesn't, then it's always going to be romanticized in the sense. It's always going to be, why can't it be like where it was back then? For example, there's a, a scene in Numbers chapter 14. Israelites are, are gone. It's after they're, they're captive. They're in the wilderness and they get a peek of the land that God wants to give them. And they see the land, they get a peek into that, and that looks great, but there's one problem. There's some really big, tough people there. And they meet that, that barrier, and they say, they meet it with unbelief. They say, God, we can't do that. There's, there's no way it's going to end badly for us. Why can't we live like we did in Egypt? Because Egypt, Egypt was bad, but at least we had security there. At least we, we knew where our meals were coming from. At least we had uh, some kind of pattern and somebody was, was kind of taking care of us there. The Israelites needed Egypt out of them before they could leave Egypt. And sometimes that's what God does with us. But I think that, that the overall thing to, to learn with this, when you're moving out in obedience and you feel like you're trusting God more and more and things get worse for you and you're faced with discouragement, I think this passage helps us to understand the experience of the Israelites at least help us understand that you've got to watch your heart. You've got to watch your attitude. You've got to watch and think about what you are believing and what you're assuming to be true about your life. Because the nature of discouragement is to take courage from you, is to take the reality of, of who God is and hide that from you. Because you're, what you're experiencing right now, this day, seems so much more real to you than God and his promises in his word. And the takeaway for us is to be asking, to be looking at our hearts and keeping an eye on and examining, am I believing his promises? Are his promises, is his truth more real to me than my present circumstances, than my present relationships? Am, am I allowing him to be more real to me? And one of the ways we go to, to keep, keep God's truth in front of us is his word. Not reading it once a week, not reading it once a month, but we're daily, as a habit, we're reading Scripture. We're praying, not reciting the Lord's Prayer, you know, just out of, just out of, out of memory, but you're engaging God. You're pouring out your heart to Him. You're being honest with Him. You're, you're talking to Him about His Word and about your life and your need for Him. You're engaged in church, and not just filling up space in a, in a pew, but you're engaged with, with the church, with relationships in the church. That there, There's people in your life that you can talk to, that, that you trust. And when you hit opportunities and, or needs, you can go to them and say, this is what I'm struggling with. Will you pray for me? I need you to pray for me. 
Uh, I, this is what I am struggling with. I'm wrestling with. I, would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? Having those relationships, having the God's word, having prayer, having the church and being reminded of truth is going to help us examine our hearts and our lives so that discouragement doesn't become more real to us than the God of the universe. Last one, unbelief in God, because I think in this last section, particularly in chapter 6, we see what is really helpful for us as we think about our own discouragement. In verses 1 through 9, God is responding to Moses uh, to Moses' complaint, Moses is God, you said things were going to be good, that, you know, that we're going in a positive direction. We've gotten more and more negative. It's gotten worse for us. Basically, in verse 1, God is saying to, uh, to, to, to Moses and to Israelites, it's going to take more than human power to get you out of Israel. It's going to take a supernatural power, and you are going to see a supernatural power deliver you from the Israelites, deliver you from the Egyptians. James Boyce makes this little comment or a little commentary. If, if Moses walked into Pharaoh's office that first time and Moses said, hey, would you let our people go? We want to do this, this, and this. And Pharaoh said, okay, let's do it. Pharaoh would turn around and say, look at what a great person I am. God's name would not be glorified. That the, the, the worth of, of all that he is able to do, his power would not be on display if it just took that one appointment. But because it gets more difficult because there's more and more uh, barriers to work through. God's name is displayed even more. But then you get into the the meat of why we should be encouraged. It starts in verse 6, and he encourages Moses with these six I will statements, or excuse me, seven I will statements. This pattern, this rhythm, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it's meant to encourage Moses and it's the same promises that he's given to the Israelites all along. In verse 6, three I will promises related to Israel's redemption. In verse 7, two promises of I will regarding their relationship to God. In verse 8, there are two promises related to their, their future rest. I love you. This is what I'm going to do, and this is what's ahead of you. These I will statements meant to draw them back and to rest in these promises, rest in these truths. The question for us is, how are, how are these promises helpful for us today in the midst of our struggle? You know, we're, we're not fighting to be free of being slaves in Egypt. What do these promises mean for us? For one, the promises of God help us when we see them lived out. Obviously, the answer to our discouragement is resting in knowing God's promises and believing those things. But the promises are even more valuable to us when we see them lived out. And there's an example of these promises being lived out. At the end of chapter 6, there's this genealogy, okay? We didn't read it, um, but it's this, this list of names. It's like a, a long family tree of Moses and Aaron and their family. And there's one individual on that list that's helpful for us. If we were the original readers of this, of this text, we would know this person. This person is, is Phineas. In verse 25, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Patel, and she bore him Phineas. Phineas was a hero. If you, if you are familiar with this, this family line and the individuals in this family tree, Phineas would, be, would stand out to you for his faithfulness. For example, when the Israelites got a, a picture of, of the promised land. They're in the wilderness, and the, the idea of going into the promised land, because of their unbelief, many of them, most of them, were not going to go. 
You had Caleb, you had Joshua. They were going to get to see it. Phineas, because of his faithfulness, he was one of those people that got to go into the new land. When there was civil war and civil threat between the Israelites, Phineas is somebody that helped keep the peace. My point is this individual helps us to see that there's hope, that the difference that can be had in your life when you keep the promises of God when you think about the long term, when, when the reality of who God is more real to you, has more weight upon your life than your present circumstances. The second thing uh, about the value of promises is this. Christianity depends on promises. Christianity depends upon promises. And sometimes living in light of those promises, believing those promises, embracing those promises means you have to wait that we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. We're waiting for God sometimes to work in our lives. We're waiting for him to answer our prayers. Waiting does not mean being passive. Waiting does not mean inactivity. Waiting doesn't mean being idle. But waiting means waiting on the Lord to work. And sometimes waiting means being obedient, being faithful, following through, reading His, reading the word, prayer, Uh, serving one another, sometimes waiting looks like that. You think about the Israelites, they were waiting for a Savior, waiting for the future, looking ahead. As believers, we know that Savior has come, but we're still waiting. We're waiting for the fulfillment of, of him coming back again, and we know that he's come once. Certainly he will come back ahead, uh, come back in the near future. Let me close with this. In the text, there's, there's a pattern that we see that helps us understand and it points us to the pattern of the salvation that we know today. And the pattern is this, that Moses was this cursed deliverer. Cursed deliverer. Remember when the Israelites leave Pharaoh's office and they have a meeting with Moses and they're mad at him. They're cursing him. You, you said you were going to be our deliverer, and look what you've done for us. You've made things even worse for us. But is Moses the last cursed deliverer? No. When we get to the New Testament, when we get to the Gospels, we see somebody who was cursed for us. In Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and this is the reality of Christ for us. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You think about those moments before Jesus was crucified, as he was being crucified. What were the crowds saying? They were saying, crucify, crucify him. Days before, they were celebrating his entrance into Jerusalem. Now they've turned and they want him crucified. Jesus was cursed in our place. When you're in those moments of discouragement, when the weight of your circumstances seems so much realer to you than the reality of God, you've got to go back to that tree. You've got to go back to the life of Christ. You've got to go back and and remember and know what he did for you has value in your life, is true for you, that God hasn't forgotten you, that God's not looking past you. He knows you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for each and every one of your sins, to redeem you, to love you. Go back to that promise and let that be more real to you than what you're experiencing. To move through discouragement, 
to move through your doubts, to move through your resistance, to remove through the unbelief that you feel creeping into your heart and into your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are too easily swayed. We're too easily look uh, past your word. We too easily think that your, your truth doesn't have any uh, real weighty bearing on our lives. Would you forgive us of that? Would you, in, clear, in clarity, show us and renew us and refresh us in your promises, in your truth, in your life given for us, that the hope of our salvation, uh, the truth that, that the, all you say is, is real and has uh, bearing on our lives, it would be real for us. And I pray for individuals who are struggling here today, who fear overwhelmed with their circumstances, whether it's because of sickness or because of relational stress or marriage or what have you, we pray that you would encourage us. We're too easily downcast. Would you strengthen us by your word and by your truth? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.